Uh, lots of, of very interesting people around here, and there'll be some duplication. So I'll try and move quickly through those things which folks have already said. Um, my thing these days is wind. So I'm going to emphasize a little bit wind, but I'll talk about some of the other renewables as well. Uh, not that key. All right. Uh, what I want to talk about is I'll start with a very brief why we need renewables, but that's pretty much already been covered. And then talk about where we get, this is just the US, where we get our electricity from now, how much it costs, how much it will cost to change to 20% wind, that's excluding uh, hydro and solar, which will put us over 30% renewables by 2030, which is DOE's um, reasonable target. And what in particular, what incentives that would help. And I'll, I'll say here that although I am never going to run for office because everybody else is wrong, and, and it just doesn't work in politics, uh, we as a community are our government in this country. And what the government does is hopefully what we tell them to do. So this is a, this is what you should tell them to do, talk. All right. Uh, Sustainability, they like to talk about a triple bottom line of economics, environment, and social aspects of whatever the subject is. Uh, the triple bottom line for our sources of electricity is that even if you uh, discount, if you, you just talk about economics, the expense of mining coal uh, in human lives, that's a social aspect, and in uh, running out of particularly liquid and gas fuels uh, exceed what we should be able to rely on. Environmentally, you don't even have to look at carbon dioxide. You can look at mercury, coal sludge, all kinds of reasons why we need to get away from depending on fossil fuels. And then socially, worker health. Um, big one is public health near power plants. Uh, WIA likes to go and ask people, would you like to, live, to go to this beach where you could see wind turbines? And would you rather go to a beach where you can see a coal plant? Even if you don't like the looks of wind turbines, most people will pick wind turbines over coal plants uh, for very good reasons. That is for next door neighbors. All right, where are we right now? This is the latest and greatest in uh, where we got our electricity from. The pie chart is 2009. The lines behind me are 1999, 2008, and 2009. So you can see that we are gradually reducing the amount of coal that we use to generate electricity. We are gradually increasing the amount of natural gas, that's methane, that we use. And we are increasing the amount of solar and wind. And you can kind of see it. But basically, we have arrived at now a measurable portion of renewable energy in solar and wind. Uh, wind is basically 2% of our electricity consumption now. Okay. Current costs, wind runs between 3 and 6 cents per kilowatt hour. It depends on where you put the wind turbine up and whether you count certain existing federal uh, incentives, such as a tax credit that um, most wind gets back. Uh, solar runs 20 to 30 cents per kilowatt hour. That's for solar electric, for photovoltaic, not solar thermal. 
Uh, hydroelectric, if it's up and running, your dam is generating electricity at two to five cents per kilowatt hour. It's pretty cheap. But if you wanted to build a new one in this country, that would be pretty tough. We've kind of used up all the places we can build dams. So a new uh, dam would cost a whole lot more. Uh, electricity generated from Wyoming coal, which is where we get it in Kansas, runs two to five cents per kilowatt hour without a carbon tax. But other coal runs a whole lot more, and I have another graph to show that. Uh, this is gas versus wind. First, the gray line is the cost of generating electricity with natural gas, and the green line is the average price of wind power since 1990 at the beginning up to 2007 on the right-hand side. The reason for the increase in wind prices now is we've, we've gotten over the decreases that go with getting good at doing this, and now we're into the increases in the cost of steel and fiberglass and so on that it takes to build a wind turbine. The blue blocks are the wholesale costs of electricity, sort of nationally. So you can see that the green line runs below or in the middle of the general cost of electricity these days. So wind costs what electricity costs, but natural gas is much worse. Coal. The orange line at the bottom is Wyoming. Everything else is a lot higher because you have to dig deep holes and send people into tunnels and worry about accidents. Uh, Wyoming, all you have to worry about is wrecking Wyoming uh, because it's, it's strip mine. Um, so that's really, really cheap and hasn't really been affected by, by other stuff. But this doesn't include what happens if we actually pay the price that we should for carbon. Um, this shows on the far left prices now of sources of various things. And the straight lines are wind and the purple one at the top, no, sorry, the red one in the middle is nuclear power. It does not depend on carbon. So if you add a carbon tax or something, that price doesn't change. The other lines as they go up are, let's see, the gray one is ordinary coal. The um, purple one is natural gas. And the yellow one, what we can't do yet, is carbon capture uh, with, of a coal plant. And there is no such thing. So we're dreaming already to even draw the line. But the idea is you don't really need very much of a cost on carbon and how we do that. I'll talk about it later. Uh, to make even offshore wind cheaper than uh, coal, ordinary coal plant. We need a cost of about $40 per ton of carbon dioxide, which is not all that high, to make it cheaper to put wind turbines offshore. Uh, the DOE has set a national goal of hitting 20% wind energy by 2030. Well, what, what's that going to do if we could get there? Um, and these turbines, by the way, are at NREL in, uh, in uh, Boulder, which most of you know, I guess. Uh, it holds carbon dioxide emissions from the electricity flat sector very nearly flat. It increases the net cost of electricity nationally a whole 2%. It doesn't need any water. So for those places where generating electricity is competing with lack of water for drinking or agriculture, it 
freeze up that water. Uh, and one of the big, well, you can't go putting turbines up because it takes away land that we were using for other things. It's about one acre per turbine, uh, which is way less than a lot of other things we could do with that land. And we, the US easily has plenty of land in the right places with good wind to do this. Uh, where's wind come from and where's it going? Just a general trend. And this very much agrees with what Peter said, that we are on the turn of the elbow. Uh, these last three lines to your right are the growth in wind en energy installed uh, in the US since 2000. Seven, eight, and then nine. So, and that 2009 bar even includes the the uh, effect of the um, economic collapse on money markets. So it was hard to buy turbines. So we're doing really well. If we keep going like that, we'll get to 30, 20% wind by 2030. And I'm going to walk away from the mic for a minute to show you where this is the hypothetical. This is DOE's goal, okay? But it starts at 2006, so we've already been there. We're here. So we've come already, increased about double of what they think we have to do to get there by 2030. So we can do this. This is an entirely reachable goal. And here's the increases in uh, the cost of electricity if we add wind versus don't. Even if we don't add new wind, demand increases, you've still got to build new power plants uh, or, or do something to meet that demand. And if we do add new wind, we need, let's see, the pale blue is to actually build the turbines. The very little thin brown line is the increase in transmission. We need a lot of increase of transmission anyway, so that's not a lot. And then uh, the cost to operate the wind turbines. This is the flattening carbon dioxide. I love this graph. The blue line is business as usual from starting in 2006 out to 2030 in terms of emissions of um, carbon dioxide by the electricity sector. The green line is IPCC's target if we're going to cut our carbon dioxide emissions by 80%. The yellow line is what happens if we go for 20% wind. That's excluding increases in hydro, uh, efficiency, um, increases in solar energy, uh, all the other options that we have. So if all we do is make the nation dependent on 20% wind electric generation, we hold carbon dioxide from the electricity sector nearly flat through 2030. What's that do to the rest of the country? This is where we, we uh, those folks you know, like me whose job is, is get excited. These are the increases in jobs that uh, could go with just, those, just, just wind. Still not looking at solar and increases in hydro. Tremendous increases in job opportunities for folks like my students. Okay, well it's definitely gonna cost us something and the cost is in building new transmission and building those wind farms. But we get reductions in greenhouse gases, in water consumption, we get increases in jobs, we get reductions on the price of natural gas, which frees it up for doing other things like heating that it's good at, uh, a net benefits of uh, over $200 billion uh, over 
the 20 years to get to 2030. All right. Okay, so it looks like it's a good idea. So how do we do it? I'll go through each of these ideas one at a time in the slides. A national renewable energy standard requiring the nation to do this. A feed-in tariff would be nice. That one costs a bit. Costs on carbon dioxide somehow. Changes to the Federal Energy Regulation Commission so we can get the transmission built where we need it. And changes to who's in charge of offshore so that we can get offshore wind built. And both of those, in fact, I suppose all of these, involve the caveat that you can't just go do stuff. You have to think about what's that going to do to the rest of the environment as well. There are places where you don't put wind turbines. Okay. Um, a National Renewable Energy Standard. Well, this is where we are right now. This is uh, off the DESIRE, the Database of State Incentives for Renewables and Efficiency, which is based in North Carolina and funded by DOE. And you can go to this DESIRE USA website and see graphs of state incentives for all sorts of things. But this particular one is Renewable Portfolio Standards. So those states that are red have some sort of law requiring that the state utilities, or some of the state utilities, get some portion of their energy. It's usually about 20%, but some of them are 10%, by 2020, 2030, 2010, and so on. Uh, I'm kind of proud that this is the one desire map that Kansas is actually red on. It's probably the only one. Um, we don't believe in incentives in Kansas. But this incentive covers 29 states plus the District of, of uh, Columbia. And many of them have what's called a uh, solar um, set, aside. set aside or, or setback that of that 20%, so much must come from sun, or must come from hydro, or may come from hydro. If we did this statewide, then we bring in the electricity demands of the southeast, which doesn't really have a whole lot in the way of either solar or wind resources. It does have biomass resources, so it could, could get some of its renewable energy locally. But it would also create a demand for building wind, uh, especially, that's the cheap one right now, in the center of the country and then shipping it by wire east, and, as well as west. So require all electric utilities, not just the investor-owned ones, to purchase, say, 30% of their energy from renewable sources. Make that 20% wind. Put in carve-outs or set-asides for wind, for solar, depending on the state. Allow the states to be more strict than the feds. 30% is probably pretty high. Um, AWEA, the American Wind Energy Association, has been pushing for 20% by 2020. Uh, and the latest stuff uh, up the road in Congress, just they just caved and gave up, said they weren't going to try this. But in terms of the number of jobs and the costs, this is a pretty much a no-brainer. Hold carbon dioxide flat, create all those new jobs, increase national electricity costs by no more than 2%, let's just do it. Why not? Uh, this is the rebate programs, but that's kind of what I meant by a feed-in tariff. It's not quite the same. A feed-in tariff 
uh, which Oregon and Washington have, I think, uh, requires a utility to pay not just retail, but more than retail for electricity generated by a customer over and above what the customer needs. So you put up solar panels on your house, they generate more energy than you need at some parts of the time. Because it's renewable, the utility not only pays retail, they pay a little bit more. Say two, three cents, it doesn't have to be that much. It's much the same as a um, renewable energy credit. Do that again nationally, and that would greatly increase the ease for customers to pay stuff off. Um, so if your utilities pay a premium price for renewably generated electricity, then homeowners can pay off their installations more quickly, and it would encourage more installations, and it would increase the amount of renewable energy that the utility is dependent on, which is supposed to do for its renewable energy standard. Uh, this would take the place of, perhaps, the present renewable energy credit, which is a uh, voluntary market trade and runs between one and two cents per kilowatt hour. But this would, would kind of find, require that and set that, that value. Carbon regulation. The problem with any idea about carbon regulation is that T word, tax. I think just about everyone says we're going to need some sort of regulation on carbon in order to keep from a runaway greenhouse get, uh, planet. Uh, there are a couple of different ways that are talked about to do it. One way is a cap and trade. We start with some fixed number of um, permits, and every year there are fewer permits. And if you need to generate more carbon than you have being given permits, you have to go and buy them from some more efficient company that doesn't need them anymore. And that would gradually, through market pressure, uh, drive down the amount of carbon emissions. The carbon tax, just a flat tax, it uh, could easily be simpler and less confusing, but I don't see anybody passing the T word, <laughs> sadly. But it would be a good idea. Some kind of carbon regulation is something that we should push the feds to do. Uh, the next piece of, of uh, help is transmission. And I put the US wind map in. This is the latest and greatest, the 80 meter map from NREL, to show where the wind is. If it's blue and purple, then you should put wind turbines up there. If it's green, well, eh, not, not, no, just don't. And if it's brown, you can probably make it work. Basically, the wind is where the people aren't. So we need to be, get away to be, move that energy to where the people live. Um, this is how the electricity markets kind of work. This isn't complete. This is the ISOs, and I couldn't find a good map that showed the other balancing areas. So western part of the country is actually two or three balancing areas. On top of that, the western grid, eastern grid, and Texas are three different grids that don't talk to each other much. But basically, within one colored area, the utilities talk to each other, build transmission to meet their needs to move their energy around. They do not talk beyond those areas. In fact, they don't even talk too well within those areas. If Minnesota builds wind, it needs to move that wind power 
out, got way more room than Minneapolis can use, move it to Chicago. That doesn't look like that far, but it's got to cross for um, Wisconsin. Wisconsin says, no, you can't put power lines across us to move with Minnesota wind. We get no benefit. Well, this is kind of like natural gas power pipelines. We put natural gas pipelines all over the place that people on the way get no benefit from. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, that's sort of the overseeing person in charge of transmission, needs to jump in and say, act like it does with natural gas pipelines or act like interstate highways, that there is a national benefit to be accrued from building transmission, big lines, across large distances that the locals do not get immediate benefit from. And part of that is figuring out who's going to pay for it because the locals should get paid if they have to put up with this transmission line. So this is a very little piece of the plans for transmission in the upper Midwest. And you can see where you've got these yellow lines. These are pretty high voltage lines to move power. Uh, that doesn't necessarily help because it's so big. It doesn't stop and pick up energy or drop off energy along the way. And so a line from South Dakota over to Minnesota doesn't necessarily benefit the people in between. So that has to be changed. Okay. Where am I going in the future? This is my dream, and these are my students who I hope are dreaming it with me. Um, first start with efficiency. We can probably cut our usage by 50% without a whole lot of effort. Uh, cut our coal use down by half. If we cut our usage by 50%, we don't even need to increase nuclear. We've already got 50% nuclear at that point, uh, or close to it. And increase renewables to upwards of 35%. This is entirely doable. The one piece that takes a little bit of work is the smart grid, because that means controlling the load because we cannot control the generation. You can't decide when the sun's going to shine, but you can predict when it will shine. You can predict. You can know when the wind will blow. You just can't tell it to blow today. So we need to be able to control our loads, our um, heaters and air conditioners and uh, dishwashers and so on, so that we gen use that electricity when it is generated. This image does not need storage, because we don't have that yet. It's coming, but we don't have it yet. This is a reachable goal within 20 years. And if we do it now while we have the oil and the coal to pull it off, then we will be able to continue something similar to our present way of life. And so will my son. And that's what really matters to me. So we'll stop there. <laughs> Uh, you said this doesn't include storage. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll need it later, but to get this far, we don't need it. We can't hear the question. I'm sorry.
uh, it makes the grid unstable. No, uh, the question is, why we are putting in money into storage research, and he says 12 to 14 percent renewable energy makes the grid unstable. Enrol has done studies that show we can get to 20 and maybe even 30 percent renewable with no changes, no storage needed. Uh, you, we've got examples of Spain and Denmark that are sometimes upwards of 50 percent renewable energy, and their grids have not collapsed. We will need storage because I left that 25 percent coal in, I want that out. But we don't need it yet. We're doing the research now, so the 20 years from now, when we've got that storage problem figured out, that's when we need it. I really agree with your premise that we want to put in renewables as soon as possible, and especially because it'll drop the price of renewables with large uh, volume of production. Um, but the carbon cap issues, I, I think, are, are really questionable. Uh, because realistically, we're going to burn all the carbon that is producible in the next 100 years, 150 years, whatever. It's going to be in the atmosphere, one way or the other. And um, and also, the, uh, just a detail that I think not many people are aware of, is that there are huge supplies of natural gas that have been discovered in the U.S. U.S. now, in the last five years, has more natural gas than much of the rest of the world combined with uh, tight gas and uh, shales. And, uh, and if that gas right now were to replace the 46% that's being used in electricity for coal, that would right there drop the, the uh, carbon uh, use by a factor of two. And just some... Just some statistics. Uh, I'm going to uh, argue that we kind of need to save what carbon we've got for the building of renewables and for plastics and medicine rather than burning it all up and throwing it into the atmosphere. That aside from, from the heat problems, which I think we, we really need to act within the next 10 years if we're going to save the planet um, uh, more than it's already gone. But one or two. Peter? What do you do about bird deaths? Peter asks, what do we do about bird deaths? Uh, wind turbine, modern wind turbines turn much more slowly than the ones that you are probably familiar with in Tehachapi Pass. And the, one, the turbines that got famous for killing hawks, one, they're lower, they spin more quickly, and they put them up in what's basically a hawk nursery. If you've never watched a young bird learn to fly, then you wouldn't understand, but they can't go straight very well, and they're going to fly into trees and turbines and get killed. Tehachapi was, unfortunately, a rather poor place to put wind turbines. Most of the Midwest, we're okay. However, that doesn't mean you put them up everywhere. You do have to pay attention. Right now, bats are a worse problem than birds. Okay, one more? One more in the middle. Yeah, I just, uh, since this is about policy, the issue here about the 50% uh, less consumption, there's a couple of things I've really been thinking about, and I'm not sure what the right government agency is to go to. Uh, you know, one is, uh, I, I just talked to people in different parts of the country. There are many places where homeowners associations don't permit people to put up clotheslines. And uh, another thing is driving around Philadelphia at night, you know, you can go past a large shopping mall. Uh, in the United States at midnight, and the stores are all closed. The parking lot is, you know, looks like a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's, 
there's got to be some way to just pass uh, a law to say, you know, after 10 o'clock at night, one out of every 10 lights can be on for security purposes or something like that. And I, I don't, I, you know, as a, as a biologist and not a politician, I don't know what the right approach is, but I can think of several things like that, you know, mandating that you can't uh, deny people the right to drive their clothes in the wind uh, and, and requiring uh, less lights at night when people aren't there. It would be a very uh, small number of simple things like that that would immediately cause us a dramatic drop in energy. Many of you know the answer to that question. I'm really interested in hearing it because I'm ready to Take him off line. Take him off line. Can you please take this man's question? I, there's a couple, a couple of points. One is, did you have the uh, replacement of the plants or the windmills and so on? Does that enter into the total cost picture that you were your But I'm putting up wind, windmills and taking away trees? Well, no, no. Is that what you mean? No, the replacement costs. They have a limited lifetime. Same thing with coal plants, same thing with uh, uh, solar uh, the lifetime yeah, of these things is about 20 years, so that's not critical. What, what is that in, the, in your cost comparison? In the cost comparisons it is, because Enroll pays attention to those the other things. other is, your wind, uh, I'm all in favor of wind, but it requires a very efficient distribution system over long distances. And this is a bad year to talk about that, because you've got solar flares going, and they're talking about that. They can knock out these big in effect, antennas to pick up the energy that's being uh, threatening satellites. We made it this far. Uh, yeah. So we, we need to let uh, the next speaker have to do both. Uh, solar cells, obviously. So, Ben, you can add anything else about yourself you would like to. No, that's fine. Well, uh, hello, everyone, and good morning. And I think you can still hear me even though I'm away from the mic. Is that fine? Okay, then we'll just continue that way. Um, so I'm going to talk about, I, I picked this title because it has a lot of Ps, and I thought that was kind of amusing. Um, but I will be talking about